Hello and welcome to the Good Morning Podcast, a podcast about the untold stories of the ordinary person in Australia. I'm Kelly, your host, and I hope you're ready to say good morning to this week's guest, Daniel Gates. This episode was recorded in 2019 in Mount Waverley, and I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which Daniel and I met. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Daniel is a 21-year-old law student. In this week's episode, we talk about Daniel's Greek family and upbringing as a bit of a troublemaker at school, as well as how he has a passion for social justice. We discuss his work in getting compensation for asbestos victims and the importance of using the law for social justice. Before we get started, I also wanted to acknowledge the hurt and anger within the black communities across the world, but especially in the US. I support the Black Lives Matter movement and also wanted to highlight the struggles of black and indigenous people of color in Australia today. It is up to us as allies to educate ourselves to be better. So I will be sharing a list of resources I found helpful in understanding the challenges facing the indigenous Australian community on the Good Morning podcast socials. My strength is in legal research and understanding how law reform happens, so that is what I focused those resources on. It does not fully illustrate the experiences of many individual Indigenous Australians. If you'd like to know more about the details and how you can instigate long-term change through the law, please go check it out. Funnily enough, we also talked about using the law for good in this episode in the third segment. If you want to skip forward to that point, please check the show notes for the exact time. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Dan is someone who grew up in the suburbs, southeast suburbs of Melbourne in Greek Central. Mm-hmm, that's right. Well, just just shy of Greek Central. Uh, you know, my most of my extended family live in Oakley, but we sort of kept it real, like kept it a bit, kept it a bit hipster. So we're in we're in Mount Waverley. You can yeah. say to Greeks like, oh, it's kind of like Oakley, but you've probably never heard of it. Before, so, so that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like growing up here? Um, look, it's a pretty quiet, leafy kind of suburb. Um, so like it was, it was cool to sort of have, um, one of the great things about, uh, growing up in Mount Waverley is, uh, we've got, I I love this. We've got one of the only pieces of remnant bushland in Victoria. Really? Um, yeah. So, so one of the only suburban pieces of remnant bushland in Victoria. There's only three other, two other suburbs beside Mount Waverley that have bushland that is as it was a hundred years ago when people first arrived. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, it's quite a lot of bush yeah. in Victoria. Yeah, no, in Victoria, <laughs> it's quite tough. Yeah. But yeah, so that's really awesome. So I sort of got to have like a suburban upbringing, but kind of with a bit of a rural flavor, which was nice, um, you know, having uh, cockatoos in the backyard and things like that oh, is awesome. always really lovely. Have you ever found a um, echidna? In your backyard? I can't say I've gone. I, I know you're trying to flex that you grew up in Bendigo ben, ben, ben on me. I literally Kelly. did, though. I was there for three years. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't quite to that extent, but like it, it's, a, it's a pretty quiet sub. I mean, I, I make jokes that it's actually Mount Raverley, but that's very tongue in cheek. Terrible joke. Yep, yes. And most of mine are. But um Your neighbours are 80 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. And that's like, it's a lot of. It's not a lot of young families, it's a lot of old people, but that's yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you grow up with a lot of family around you? Yeah, so I mean, um, we're a family of four, so living in the house together. Uh, I'm the oldest um, sibling of uh, of two, and um, and I don't, I don't really remember the days before my, my sister rocked up. Um, but yeah, so as long as I can remember, we've been sort of a really tight-knit unit of four. Uh, 
my maternal grandparents live only about 10 minutes away. Uh, my paternal grandparents live down in Mount Eliza, but um, they make the trip up pretty regularly and constantly surrounded by extended family from both sides as well. So yeah, lots of... Being Greek, it's kind of hard to describe. Like every every male family member who's significantly older than you is an uncle. Every female <laughs> family member is an aunt. Every, every family member who's about your age is a cousin. So <laughs> I grew up with... I've only got three first co- sorry, three first cousins on one side and six on the other, but I grew up with upwards of 20 cousins because second and third cousins and cousins twice removed and things like that are all sort of just as close. Nice, nice. And you told me that you were practically raised by your grandparents because both yeah. of your parents worked full-time. Yeah, so growing up, um, my parents worked full-time. Um, they're both barristers and at the time practicing criminal law like when I was a kid so very busy lots of court work um so yeah a lot of school holidays a lot of after schools I was looked after by my grandparents yeah Um, and so you spoke Greek to them I did so when I was in um when I was really really young um after I was born mum basically went straight back to work and um so my maternal grandparents because they were a lot closer shouldered the load so and their Eng- their English was pretty good for for um, you know migrants um, who didn't learn any at school. They sort of had to learn it all on the go. They did pretty well, but Greek was definitely what they were more comfortable with. And so yeah, I spoke Greek better than I spoke English until I was about four. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, but you spoke English to your parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this mum spoke Greek, so it's really interesting that on the family vi- on family videos, mum there's videos of mum speaking Greek to me and me firing back with just really fluent Greek that makes me really jealous of, of toddler me. Um, yeah. So this is all before you started going to preschool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then with preschool, obviously, um, not a lot of um, Greek-speaking kids or um, teachers, so English became pretty important. Yeah. yeah. You know what's so crazy to me? Because, mm. like, when I moved to Australia, I was 15 years old. This was back in 2014. Mm. And I moved straight to Bendigo, so I had never really entered the Melbourne scene or anything until I came to Monash for uni. Mm. And you know, like Monash, it's in Clayton, very multicultural part of town, especially because people come in from Oakley, like all this part of town, like Mm. it's really multicultural there. I did not realize how multicultural Melbourne was because like Bendigo is, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> pretty monocultural yeah yeah it's getting better but you know back then it was it was pretty monocultural mm. as you say um, i was gonna say agricultural <laughs> like, i was like oh that's really funny but then, then i was like no nah, that's not funny and then i thought expressing how not funny it is might get a laugh anyway so but anyway i didn't even realize that there was such a strong greek community mm. until i met someone one of my friends who lives in oakley and he was like yeah like, Oakley has one of the biggest population concentrations of Greek people outside of Athens. Mm. So, a really interesting stat is that Melbourne has the highest population of Greek people outside of Greece. Yeah. And the third highest population of Greek people anywhere in the world, including in towns in Greece. Oh my god, that's <laughs> yeah. so crazy. Yeah. But it's, it's a pretty recent migration, right? So, it's an interesting thing. There's sort of been two big waves of Greek migration. So, in sort of the 50s and 60s, um, Greece had a civil war. Greece also was hit by a number of earthquakes. So, um, my grandparents moved because of the earthquakes. They, they were, Their village was referred to as Little Moscow during the civil war because it was sort of the centre of the, the communist rebellion. So, they weren't fussed about that. But um, the, um, 
the the earthquakes that you know destroying livelihoods and people realized there wasn't a future there mm. um that's what my grandparents always told me and so they um they came over here there was sort of a first wave like the late 50s um, and through the 60s um and then again actually after the um the global um, financial crisis we saw when you know greek went into that horrible horrible debt another sort of wave of Greek migration coming here because... That was pretty recent. Yeah, well, that's it. As recent as 2010. Yeah. Um, there's there's sort of already was a Greek community here, so it was a, a really good option for people to come out. A lot yeah. of people had family here already. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you have more family members come? We The entire family left Greece, so I only have um, one uncle, uh, two uncles there, one who stayed and one who moved back. Um, after he retired. Okay. So, there, my my mum's side. My mum's the Greek one. Um, her her family sort of centres around three brothers: my grandfather and his two younger brothers, and they all came. And then all of their kids were born here. Right. Um, and same with my grandmother. She was one of three as well. Her brother stayed. That's the uncle I've got there. And then she and her sister came over. So, the majority of my family sort of came in that first wave of migration yeah yeah it's pretty special though i mean like when you walk around oakley and stuff like you see all the signs they're mm. in greek there's all the food everywhere like and you can hear people speaking in greek yeah. as well when you're in the shops and everything i was very surprised <laughs> to be honest yeah i mean it's a really beautiful thing like i've got look my greek's pretty slapdash but i've got enough that i can order my souvlaki at, um, at uh, the, my favourite souvlaki bar. So yeah. I can get by with that. And I like to because it's a, a nice way to stay in touch with the with the culture and with the language. And it's so funny that because I don't look very Greek, right? Like mm. I, I, I look quite, um, I say quite white, which is obviously it's got its own connotations there. I look quite um, Anglo-Saxon, I'll yeah. say. Um, so people will speak to me in English. And then when I reply in Greek, there's this little like, surprised moment <laughs> and then they hit the greek hard to like make up for it look this happens to me like but the opposite way in mandarin mm. and like when i go to chinese restaurants and stuff they'll start speaking to me but i just can't cope or i could just can't be bothered <laughs> like using my brain to, to <laughs> have to translate this so i'm just like i'm just gonna pretend thanks mate yeah <laughs> love a bit of steamed rice <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, what do you think that the culture here amongst like the Greek immigrants mm -hmm. is different to the culture in Greece? Like, has it become almost Australian Greek culture? Yeah. So, I'll give you an example, right? So, when Greek people came here, they were trying to help their kids integrate while still maintaining the culture. And what difficult that, task? Yeah. <laughs> and what that created was this kind of hybrid language. So, I I don't speak Greek. I speak Gringlish. Right, because, there's a name for it. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> name for it. Because it, So if you go to Greece and you want to jump in a car, it's called an aftokinito. Okay, right. so that's like the Greek word for car. In Australia, if a Greek person gets in a car, it's called a caro. Right. A car with an O on the end. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, the the roof is torufi. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the floor is toflori. Um, you eat tosta out of the tostaki, right? So yeah. I'm kind of getting the pattern here. Yeah, so it's just they, they kind of just chuck the Greek su prefixes and suffixes onto English words. Right. Um, Mustaki is my favourite for moustache. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'd say there is certainly a difference in that sense. Um, it's hard to say, though, because I think... So much of Greek culture comes from 
a connection to family and a, um, a connection to family in an extended sense. So not just the small family unit, but beyond. Uh, and I think in Greece, there's a big admiration for just enjoying, like enjoying life. It's a, it's a culture that really embraces, um, the finer things, but, and also the little moments. And I think that's very present in the Greek community here and in the Greek community in Greece. Yeah. So when you went into high school and stuff, like what was that experience like? Did, was it, cause I've been talking to a lot of people mm. and you know, when we're talking about our childhood and stuff, a lot of it centers around the high school time. Yeah. It's either I loved it or it was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like for you? Um, high school was interesting for me. I was like, I was quite comfortable with the, the workload and stuff. Like I, um, I don't like the term like a, like a smart kid because I wasn't. I was just like, like I was switched on to stuff and I liked most of what we were studying. Mm-hmm. If I didn't like something, I didn't try in it at all. Did um, you ever not like anything? Oh yeah, art was rubbish. I can't, <laughs> can't draw, can't paint. So I just go in there and that was that was my free period in year seven when we didn't have them. Um, um, but yes, yeah, so, and and that, look, that was sort of a um, an attitude that I always had that like if I liked stuff, I tried really hard at it, and then if I didn't like it, I just you know, I don't care. Um, yeah. Uh, which is a habit that I've tried to break as I've gotten older because, you know, you can't just give up as soon as you don't <laughs> like something. Um, but high school for me, I um, I was in trouble a lot. Like I, um, you know, I, <laughs> I was having dinner with um, my parents, my sister and her boyfriend and we were reminiscing on funny stories and the 90% of them were times that my mum and dad got called into the school because I've gotten in trouble. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Is that something to be proud of? Or? I, I mean, <laughs> look, it was a very strict school. I think a lot of the stuff I did there that got me in trouble, teachers wouldn't have batted an eyelid at um, at other schools. Yeah. Like, I was cheeky. Was it like that you didn't have your collar ironed <laughs> or something? <laughs> Not quite to that extent. Like, I was cheeky, so I back-chatted and I, you yeah. know, um, I, I, like, I did stupid. Like, I, I don't know. It's a problem, I think, of our society that we do write this off. But I think to a certain extent, like, I think teenage boys between, like, 12 and 14 are just the, the dumbest population source of, of the <laughs> Like, if you, if you sampled, like, median IQ, it would be boys 12 to 14 that would be the lowest. Because, like, I just did stupid things. Like, we, you know, um, so the year 12 boys when I was in year 8, um, decided they were all going to ride around on scooters. So okay. then, like, all the year eight boys were like, yeah, we'll do it too. And then we organised the annual scoot bury and then um, got in heaps of trouble for it because they were like, you're not allowed to... Are you to talking ri- about, like, motorbikes? Or are you no, no, talking like, about- no, 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 like, like, oh. like razor scooters. Okay. And we were, like, riding them in the classrooms. We whoa, we just want to get around, miss. Like, what? And, you know, just d- I did dumb things like that. Um, yeah, a lot of trouble for sort of back-chatting. T- back teachers in subjects that I didn't think were important um, and things like, <laughs> like that. Like art. <laughs> like art, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to that degree, like, it made things challenging for me, but it was challenges that were of my own creation. But I had what I was really lucky with in high school was I had just a really beautiful year level. Like, from year 7 to year 12, it was basically the same. We had a few sort of come in and out, but the vast majority were that same core group and it was a small school it was only 68 of us in the year level um and it was just a really supportive environment where 
people like I genuinely liked everyone in my in my year level. Even the people who I would have like I'd have I had I had screaming matches with some of these people, but every single person in that year level, like I still at their core, I liked them. Yeah, and that was an amazing thing to have because I know a lot of people go to schools where they don't even know everyone in their year level. Um, and so I was really fortunate to have that, which made things a lot easier. And I think going to such a small school meant that I was able to take advantage of like having friends in different year levels and things like that, uh, which all helped to make it a positive experience. So I was in trouble a lot, but I still had I still had a good time. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like you still had the respect of your teachers, even though you got into so much trouble. Yeah, I think I was one of the. You probably you probably can picture one when I explain. I was one of those naughty kids who all the teachers like, because <laughs> I like I wasn't doing stuff that was like hurting others or anything like that. And yeah. I was never like I was cheeky, but I never took it to the extent of attacking people like personally. Yeah, attacking. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'd be I'd be cheeky, and and I think. I think now, like, my, for work, I teach at schools and I really like cheeky kids. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because I was one too, but I think being able to kind of snap back with something witty shows that they're engaged. And so I really like that. And I, I kind of, because I never understood why teachers liked me because I thought, <laughs> like, I don't know what, I'm causing mayhem in your classroom. <laughs> um, but, yeah. What do you think made you behave that way? I think to a certain extent, especially in the earlier years, like I was bored. I think um, those studies have shown that like kids who aren't feeling challenged uh, muck around because there were a whole group of us who just sort of mucked around. I think also to an extent, like just, you know, that age boys tend to be, uh, and there's exceptions to that, obviously, um, and it's true of girls too, but I think a stereotype that holds some water is that boys between 13 and 15 are pretty pretty rowdy and pretty excitable um, and we were no different. So um, I think I think as well, I've always liked like being entertaining and stuff like that. And when you're young, like when you're that young, it's entertaining to watch someone muck around. And so I would get laughs and I'd be like, oh, cool, I'll keep doing that. Yeah. Do you think that if everyone just stopped reacting to you? Oh, oh I would have been embarrassed. I would have been mortified. <laughs> And I, I never did it because, I mean, I picked my moments well. But there were other guys who would say things and everyone was just like, whoa, no, not cool. Like, and no one would react and they'd be – and it's a really funny thing to watch because first they'll try to double down and then when no one reacts to that, they just bright red in the face, silent for, <laughs> silent for the rest of the day. I never did things like, like you know, picking on people. Well, I got in trouble all the time because I sort of – was a bit of a hothead and if I saw someone getting picked on us, something I thought wasn't right, like I, you know – did um, there was a boy in year seven who was saying these really awful things about another guy's sister, and this guy was quite you know small, quite timid, and he was quite rattled by it. And so I just, me and one of my mates kind of looked at each other, and we just stood up, we just picked him up, and we dropped him in a bin. And then, like, <laughs> just, and then the teacher came in like right as we dropped him, so we we had a week of lunchtime detentions for that. Right, but so you never. So what do you think makes the difference? when it just is mucking around and it escalates into bullying? Like, why is it that it, for you it never escalated into that? I mean, for me, first of all, like, my personality tended to be, like, I know that story doesn't, like, that story sort of an outlier. I tend to like verbal jokes and always did. Wasn't really into, like, you know, bashing someone up or things like that. Um, so, I mean, I liked, um, you know, 
uh, if I saw, usually, if I saw something like that that I didn't like, I'd just say something kind of sharp to the person and make put them back in their place. Uh, and then I think I have the same thing when I'm interacting with people. Like I like to poke fun, but you've got to read your room mm-hmm. and it's about who you're poking fun at, right? Like if someone's just done something stupid, right? That's like, for me, that's, that's it's open slather now. <laughs> it's like they've served you that on a platter. You've got to make a joke about it. But it's like one joke or two jokes is fine. Three weeks of jokes, you've now crossed the line. And yeah. I think that's, I accidentally made that rhyme and I hate it. Um, <laughs> if it rhymes, it's true. Yeah, it's going to end up on a t-shirt or something, a throw pillow. I was like, oh, fantastic. It's the anti-bullying campaign from Dan the anti-bullying wog. And I come in with my chains and my tracksuit pants. Yeah, um, um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I think, it, I think it crosses a line where the person's not in on the joke anymore. Yeah. And because I think you can tell when someone's stopped. There's, I feel like there's three stages. There's like finding it funny, there's tolerating it, and then there's a problem. Yeah. And I think those first two stages, it's all fine and everything's all, all well and good. It's when you cross that line. And I think as well, where the aim isn't to like make everyone laugh, but the aim is to embarrass that person and make them feel bad. Or to like validate yourself. Yeah. I think that's where it's obviously bullying. And I, I mean, again, I was lucky that I had a really good group of friends who weren't into that stuff. So I wasn't into it too. And I think uh, we were told this at the start of the year seven. And you know, those things that like, like I can't, I can't do quadratics, but I remember this thing that someone said. <laughs> someone said to us, and you said the, the year level coordinator said, "Remember, guys, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with." Mm-hmm. And I, I think I'm just lucky that I spent time with really good people. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I know you've told me stories before, and like the thing about you dumping that guy <laughs> in, like where you've kind of stood up for other people. Like, where do you think that sense? I don't know if you call it justice, but like. Where do you think it came from? It's funny. It was only like the, the eighth or ninth time that something like that happened and I got in massive trouble and, the, and my parents had to take me home from school that anyone told me. Um, it was actually my grandma, my paternal grandma, had to come from Mount Eliza and pick me up. <laughs> and she said, your dad was exactly the same. Oh. I think to a certain extent, like it might be like a genetic thing, but I also think I, don't, I grew up with parents who for a living stand up for people who need to be protected and i was it was always instilled in me from when i was very young that where you have strength you use that to look after people and like my strength was that i was like taller than everyone else in the year level so <laughs> you know um in those days like that's what i you know yeah used and i another strength was that i was quite quick-witted that's where it came from it was that sort of thing of like probably genetic but also I think like my upbringing centered around that looking after people is that the reason why you decided to study law it's interesting my the first thing I wanted to study the first thing I wanted to be was a fire truck um but that <laughs> like yeah the I, no no a fire truck yeah no, no. <laughs> so that's when I was about three um uh, you just love making noise. It's still mm, the same. I do, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was really unfortunate that society's acted as a barrier to me <laughs> achieving that dream. So I had to, <laughs> had to find something else. Um, no, in all seriousness, my first actual job that I wanted um, was I really wanted to be a vet. 
So I love animals. I always have. Um, and it was funny because I really wanted to be a vet terrible at science. And then I was interested in politics as a kid because I saw, I had a pretty sort of simplistic understanding of politics in that I thought if you become a politician, your job is to look after everyone. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Right. Um, and then you can't just become a politician. I mean, unless you're Christopher Pine. I don't, sorry, I don't know if this is if, you, if it's too edgy for your podcast, but uh, you can't like just become a career politician. Generally speaking, you work in something else first. Yeah. Um, and that was explained to me. So I was like, all right, uh, I guess law is a good pathway because it's in the family business. So it sort of started as like a pathway to that. But then once I saw it as my first career, if you like, I started to get really passionate about it. And I, I think... In every job that I've wanted to do, even in fire truck, in in every job that I've wanted to do, I've had a desire to make a positive social impact with what I'm doing with my life. And the way that that's manifested has changed and it's changed a hundred times, but that fundamental aim has always been there. And even when I sort of locked in that law was what I wanted to do without politics following it, we're just sort of staying in working in the law. The, the areas that I've wanted to practice have changed a hundred times and it's only been three years. Um, <laughs> but again, that desire to make sure that what I'm doing is socially positive has stayed. Yeah. So what has law school been like? What's great about studying law is, yeah, you learn sort of the black letter law and you learn what a contract is and you learn, you know, how what the formal requirements for assigning land and I tried to think about what are the two most boring things I've learned, and that's definitely them. Um, you learn the black letter law, but the subjects also show you the positive impact that you can have with that law. Like for every, at least for me, for every case that's just about like company A sold a really expensive property to company B, and then company B. I don't know, actually was taking bribes, like like help out the two billionaires to find out who, like that's sort of really dispassionate, I don't care. There's cases that made really awesome impact using the same areas of law. Can you give me an example? I can, and I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> so we look at um, we look at a thing in um, contract and sort of consumer law, um, there's an overlap there called uh, misleading and deceptive conduct, which you're familiar with, but I'm assuming... Your listeners aren't, and that's why I'm explaining it. <laughs> Basically, when you are advertising a product or a service, you cannot be misleading or deceptive about it, which means broadly you can't say things that will that do make people uh, misbelieve about the product or are likely to, um, to make mistakes about what it can do. Uh, I took a subject called animal law this year where we learned about a, a dolphin marine park in New South Wales that advertised their dolphins as healthy and happy. The really interesting thing you got to understand about animal law in Australia is you can't prosecute someone for a cruelty offence unless you're the police, a government agency, or the RSPCA. Private citizens can't conduct prosecutions. And what that means is that the police, the RSPCA, and the government departments weren't interested in this dolphin park where... You're talking specifically about criminal law here. Um, yeah, I'm talking about an overlap between animal and criminal. I'm talking about an overlap between criminal law and civil law in a uh, in a context of animal rights. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, you've got this. So I've given the background on misleading and deceptive conduct, right? Mm-hmm. That'll come in later. Mm-hmm. So this dolphin park, going back. So this dolphin park, um, vets went in and they assessed the dolphins. They said these dolphins are not healthy and they're not happy. They're exhibiting signs of depression. They're malnourished. Um, now, concerned citizens found out about that and couldn't do anything about it under the cruelty legislation because even though the animals were satisfying that definition of cruelty, they were private citizens. And the police, the RSPCA, and the government agencies weren't really interested in doing anything. But because they were advertising a service, right, the dolphin park was advertising, you know, you come here and pay money and see the dolphins, they could be sued for misleading and deceptive conduct. Right. And then the court paid out a massive amount of money. I've forgotten the exact figure, but a very, really significant amount of money Um because there was no loss suffered by, like, the people lost the value of their, like, $14 ticket or whatever it was. But they were saying, this also needs to punish what you're doing. Because advertising that animals are happy and healthy and then having them depressed and malnourished is morally wrong. And so what I love about law school is it teaches you these, these sort of abstract legal concepts that you can apply to make a really positive difference. Yeah, and I think that's a prime example of lawyers being pretty creative. Yeah, and that's it. Like, lawyers cop a lot of flack, and, like, I get it. I've met plenty of lawyers. I understand why. (laughs) But there's some out there who are just doing some really, really awesome stuff. And it's things like that that I'm really passionate about getting involved with. I think in law, what happens to a lot of lawyers is they come out of law school with these high ideals, and then suddenly it's time to put food on the table and pay the bills. And then they just go where the money is. I think where you can find something that makes a positive difference but still still sustains a lifestyle, that's something that I'm looking for in the law. And so I want to be realistic about that fact. But I don't want to be one of these lawyers who just works in a commercial job making money for millionaires and then at the end of it goes, okay, now I'm I'm 70, it's time to give back. I've got 10 good years in me. to make up for all the damage caused, right? <laughs> That's not what I want. So I, I, I would like to start from the beginning, but acknowledging as well that, like, you know, I've got to eat. Do you currently work in any, like, legal capacity? Yeah, so I'm working as a law clerk with an um, American law firm um, that's got an office here in Melbourne. Um, and what they do is they... It's a really niche area of law. So they're a personal injury firm that only represents people exposed to asbestos. They only represent people who are exposed to asbestos products that were manufactured in the US. And what happens is they um, file claims in the US on behalf of these foreign applicants. So our office is the the quote-unquote international office. So we do all the legal footwork for clients who are living in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Yeah, and what do you do? Um, so what I'll do typically is we sort of go company by company, um, and you look at how many clients you've got who are uh, exposed to products manufactured by those companies. And the thing about asbestos is it was everywhere. My job is to go through the claims and see, um, whether the, the, the diagnosis is strong enough to hold up, um, in court in the U S they've got some very specific guidelines on what, um, diagnoses are and aren't acceptable. Um, and also look at um, the client's statements and any depositions or affidavits that they've made um, talking about how they were exposed. 
And do you think after, because you've been here working there for two years? Yeah. Yeah. So then, and after doing all of that work on the plaintiff side, mm. like, what do you think of the people who represent the defendants? <laughs> it's an interesting thing. So I believe strongly that everyone deserves to be legally represented because if they didn't, you get a company that, you know, you'd get, you could get companies or people getting sued unfairly and losing just because they, losing because no one was there to tell them that, hey, no, you've actually, you can save some money here. I think defense lawyers for, for these companies are good because they keep plaintiff lawyers honest. Otherwise, the temptation, I could, and I could understand it, the temptation would be there to just squeeze as much money as you could out of the person. And there, there comes a point where you have to remember that these companies still employ people. These companies still feed families as a result, and there needs to, there needs to be a balance struck. Because the thing is, well, a lot of the there's only one or two companies that are sued that were just asbestos um, manufacturers. Most of them had an asbestos division, mm. so you know they're still businesses that are employing people and you know ensuring that um, kids go to school and things like that. So. I think, like, it's. I'm always asked this in relation to, like, how, what do you think of the people who defend murderers and rapists? And I always say, in response, you have to think, what would I want if I was falsely accused of this? And I think it's the same thing for the civil, at least to a certain extent. Yeah, so, and it's like, if you believe that you are innocent until proven guilty, and you strongly believe that that is an important facet of mm. an equal and just society, then you have to support defense lawyers yeah and i like i think i think we all should yeah yeah and do you think that the law is on the average person average ordinary person's side i think it depends i think there's some areas of law where the chips are really stacked against you i think there are others where um the chips are really stacked against the defense like in um like in in australia our system is very much in um, if it, asbestos is obviously like what, what I know the most about. So dust diseases, it's called, is like the practice area because there's other other industrial dusts that cause similar diseases to mesothelioma. Um, dust diseases is very geared towards plaintiffs because a lot of them are about to die. And so it's really important that the matter gets heard, that they give their evidence before they die. So... Um, in that sense, like yeah, I think if, if, if you were to be exposed to asbestos, the law will do everything it can to make sure you're compensated justly. But I'm, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, in our criminal system, we've got big problems. Currently, the government's considering banning committal proceedings before trials, which would mean that... What does that mean? So, before you go to trial for an indictable offence, so a really serious crime, a magistrate hears all the evidence first and decides if there's a... Has the prosecution got a case? Um, because if the prosecution's going up on flimsy evidence, they shouldn't, the, the, the idea is that the magistrate will go, this is rubbish. I'm not letting this go through. Mm -hmm. They're planning on getting rid of those, which sort of cuts out that barrier that would stop people from just getting frivolously prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Um, our bail system now is very, very, very restrictive. Um, and has been since reforms were brought in, I think 2017, um, so if you find if you were to find yourself on the wrong side of the law, falsely accused of something, having had a prior conviction for something, or um, or while you were on a community corrections order, 
you're very, very, very unlikely to receive bail. And if it's a serious offence, there's a potential that you won't even have that evidence tested by a magistrate before it goes to trial. So that's a problem. I think that there are definitely parts of the law where the ordinary person has really got the deck stacked against them. And you think about criminal law, you know, it's one individual against the infinite resources of the state. Yeah. Um, like, I think the interesting thing, this might sound dumb, but like, if a law student can say this, then it's fine if you, the listener also <laughs> doesn't know this. <laughs> but like, when I, before I entered law school, I was like a strong science and mathematics student, so mm. I didn't study politics or anything. I did not know that law was made in parliament. Like, I didn't know that politicians <laughs> made the law. I just kind of thought that it was just this thing mm. that was just there. And I think there's this conception, this misconception that the law is almost like God's word, you know? Yeah. But it was created by, by people. people. Yeah. And it does change pretty every dumb. single Sorry, day. I've already said something about politics now. So I'm <laughs> pretty dumb people too, like a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's like, when you go to the voting booth, you need to seriously think about what kind of laws are going to be made mm. because they're what affects every single aspect of your life. Oh, yeah. Like, that was something that I didn't understand before I went to law school. It's that you think you might think that the law is irrelevant unless you're some sort of criminal or you, you know, are dodging, a dodgy person. Yeah. But it... It regulates, especially in Australia. Like, if you think about how many driving regulations yeah. Australia has, traffic rules, it is honestly always yeah, there. It, it, I had a lecture in first year. Ask us, can you think of one area of your life that's not regulated by the law and no one could? Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that's a good thing? Um, do I think that's a good thing? I mean, I think so to a certain extent. I think there needs to be an enforceable code that makes people act responsibly and not just in like the criminal law sense, but in the civil law sense as well. I think, you know, I hear a lot of arguments where people say, oh, you don't need rules. Businesses will, businesses will do what's right because if they don't, then people won't do business with them. And that's fine. But if everyone's doing wrong, then everyone's going to do wrong. Yeah. Like, um, and if it's increasing profits, they'll do it. So I think that in every sense, we need um, rules that, Force, that make it enforceable that people do the right thing. So I think that's important. Yeah. And so, you know, because, like, you've told us stories, like, previously about how in high school and stuff, like, your strong sense of justice might have led you to dumping people in bins <laughs> and maybe into, like, some questionable scenarios where mm. if you were older and someone had seen you doing that on the street, you mm. might have ended up on the wrong side oh, of the Oh, I absolutely wall. could have. Absolutely could have. If I... If, I think if I'd been in the CBD and me and one of my mates chucking someone in a bin, <laughs> easily someone would have called the police. Yeah, yeah. And so do you think that in that sense that it is hard sometimes to do the right thing? I mean, I don't know. I I don't know if I'd, I'd take it that far because, I mean, yes, there are times where doing the right thing can land you in hot water, but where you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, I think the law looks after people. There are exceptions. I think something, I saw you posted about this on Facebook actually and I, I thought you articulated it really well, is how in Victoria the police have reacted recently to sort of the spate of climate protests um, and how the law should be protecting democratic rights but instead it's protecting an industry that's going to kill 
everyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. um, and so, so there are definitely scenarios where I think um, the the law's not protecting. Uh, the, sorry, where scenarios where I think that it is hard to do the right thing because I think the people out there protesting are doing the right thing because they're bringing attention to the issue and they're being punished for it. Um, they're facing charges for a phrase and uh, disrupting police. And I saw there was that woman who was crushed by a police horse and someone slapped the horse to try and like get it to move off her and he's been charged with an animal cruelty offence. Yeah, I, I know. I know. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think it can be hard to do the right thing sometimes where the government doesn't want you to. But I think general citizen, if if Joe Citizen or Jane Citizen on the street sees someone, um, you know, committing a crime and intervenes, the the system protects them. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. I have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. What does making a difference mean to you? The way I've come to think about it and rationalize in my head is I think you need to have an attitude of never stop kicking, right? You've just got to, I think you've just got to be belligerent in the face of things that are unfair and you don't give up. You just, you know, if I think about the Monty Python sketch where the, um, the, the black knight is fighting, um, King Arthur and he gets both his arms chopped off. And he goes, go on, I'll kick you. And, he's, and then he gets both his legs chopped off and he says, come back here, I'll bite your feet off. Right? Like he's, um, you know. um, I think you've got to sort of be like that. So for me, I think making a difference is about being really stubborn. Um, and I think it's about seeing... It's about seeing what you want to fix, seeing how you're going to fix it and then attacking it. I think it needs to be... Certainly a belligerent approach. I think you shouldn't give up, but I think it should be a planned thing as well. So I guess that's what it means to me. And what do I want to make a difference in? I mean, I don't know. I change. (laughs) There's lots of things I'd like to change. What I will end up changing, what I'll end up trying to change, that's something that I uh, I'll have to wait and see for when I'm out in the big wide world. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Good Morning Conversation with Daniel Gates. If you like what we're making, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps us get this out to even more people. As I said at the start of the podcast, I really encourage you to educate yourself about the issues facing black communities and especially the Indigenous Australian community. If you'd like to access the list of resources that I put together, as well as some advocacy tips, please go to our socials, which is at goodmorning.pod on Instagram and the Good Morning Podcast on Facebook. You can also join our Facebook group, which is the Good Morning Podcast, if you'd like to join in on the discussion. Our next episode is going to be out on Friday, which is our after show episode with Daniel Gates. So I will see you there. <laughs>